1: The Telegraph.
2: Telegraph. Podcasts.
3: Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. I'm Brian Moore. I'm joined in the studio today by The Telegraph's rugby correspondent, Mick Cleary. Hello, Mick. Hello, Brian. Well, we're we'll talking to George Shooter, formerly of Leicester. So let's leave the Leicester Newcastle game and talk about James Haskell, mm. who's called rugby a pretty boring sport after his yellow card against Saints. I'm not sure where he's coming from here, are you?
0: I think, I and mean, he also said, I think immediately post match interview I heard when I was at London Irish, but heard it down the line of um, called it pathetic, um, which is, no, I think he was on about this thing about high tackles and, and being what he considered, gone soft in in being too officious about high tackles. Now, the thing is, you've got massive sort of worry and concern about concussion issues compared to when you played in terms of what is blown up and what is not blown up. There's no question. It's much more rigorous, much more pleased. And I've watched games where you think, crikey, how has he given a penalty? And often a yellow card for that. But I guess you can't have a drive to try and reduce head injuries and not be – are they being zealous about this or not being certainly very, very hard and harsh on making sure the arm is low and doesn't make contact with the head? So there will be a bit of a grey area and there will be a bit of an area where you think, actually, that's a bit harsh, that yellow card. But if that's the objective of it, which I believe it is, then you've got to back it.
3: You know, I'll come back to this. Tacklers and players, they can go in at any height they want. Yeah. And if they choose to go in higher, then maybe it's sensible. And they get towards the borderline. If a referee is harsh or they say gets it wrong, they knew that. Yes. Before they made the yeah. challenge, and the yeah. very simple antidote is to go lower.
0: To go low, as, as always used to be the case. That was the textbook tackle, wasn't it? Take it, yeah. take him low and bring them down. But you see something like Mario Itoja yesterday. I think got penalised. Actually, I thought he was. Uh, He'd had a yellow card. I thought, crikey, he's going to get sent off here because he'd had a yellow card for slapping the ball down. But he's so upright, a guy like Marin, obviously so tall, he tends sometimes to leave that arm out and players duck. But as the law stands and as the, as the kind of clarification on the law, I think from last year, is you are responsible, even if a player is ducking into you, to take that arm away. So you're absolutely right. If in doubt, go low and don't go high.
3: And the other thing is, it's their careers... Yeah. It doesn't matter to me or you yeah. whether they want to belt each other around the head all day long. If, if they think the game's not hard enough, which it is, mm. then they can do that all day long and we can write about it and people can watch it and maybe they'll and R. but it's not our careers that are going to suffer from you know, early retirements, concussions, and that sort of thing. Whilst there's an element of trying to get rid of this for the youth and whatever, mm. is to try and protect. Players yeah. and prolong their careers because they're getting shorter and harder anyway.
0: And, and you can argue in certain situations, you know, as, as probably as James is referring to, the actual contact of arm on a head or shoulder, even or neck or whatever it was, possibly wasn't that forceful, so wouldn't have caused any damage. However, the intention is over a period of a season, maybe a season and a half, to educate players, even subconsciously, as you say. To stop doing that or not to run the risk of doing it, I guess, is a better way of, of putting it, isn't it? So tackles become lower. But it,
3: look, it's not as if players don't know that yeah. referees have been told to referee strictly. Yeah. And it's up to them because they're bright enough. They're professionals. They can adapt. And you just wonder how long it's going to take for a message to go through because it's a fairly simple one.
0: And also that hanging arm, as it were, or that arm that goes high mm. has exactly. been ingrained actually to prevent release. Yes. So they're doing it out of self-interest in terms of, 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 of a playing strategy, aren't they, to stop the offload. So it's not as if it's, uh, not if it's done just for the kind of purity of a tackle at all. It, it's, it's, it's deliberately ingrained even if it's not deliberately executed in that way.
3: Well, talking about injury, George Cruz is now on the England tour. He's yeah. to having ankle surgery. Elliot Daly is a doubt. And it now stands. Jonathan Joseph, Courtney Laws, Nathan Hughes, Anthony Watson and Dylan Hartley all definitely out. And we haven't got to the end of the season yet. And if Eddie Jones wanted to rest some of the players that had gone on Lions duty, he might find he's taking almost an experimental squad, which is not, I'm sure, what he wanted. And this time in the rope to the World Cup,
0: no. But Erasmus lost 300 players, or no. South Africa did over the last three or four years, and I know Erasmus intends to uh, to bring in some of those overseas-based players. So don't cry for me, England. Really, they have their their resources are, are deep enough. Um, however, the point you you made and the question you asked by is is correct. Actually, you know this is the last tour before the Rugby World Cup. What seemed a distance away, uh, as it always does for all of us, is suddenly. Galloping towards you, you know. So this tour is actually very important, as much for the training as it is for the test matches, when actually should have significance and and do have significance, particularly after England's pretty pitiful Six Nations Championship. So no, they, he is he is short of a few. However, there are guys that can step step in and step up, and and, and England ought to be able to to weather those kind of. Um, Injury sort of spikes, I guess, but but yeah, you don't want any more, that's for sure.
3: And on the other hand, Big Billy is back. I think you yeah. you saw him first hand, didn't you? I did.
0: Did I was getting a bit worried having gone to London Irish to watch Billy. I think Saracens used every other substitute bar Billy Vunapola, and on a freezing cold day, you uh, wanted something to, to warm the cockles of to ride about. Yeah, he came lumbering on as he does on the hour, and he looked as as Billy Vunapola, and you could see obviously he's not match fit, match shot, whatever we say these days. Um, but you could just see what has been missing for Saracens, and I think especially for England, when he picks up. I mean, there are big, there are lots of big guys in rugby, as you well know, but every time he gets the ball, Billy, he makes yardage. He churns the yardage through, and tacklers try to drag him down, but he's just got this natural strength through his hips, I guess, as, as well as the top body frame. He makes 10, 15 yards, so... There was nothing sensational in it, but he looked fine. He, it was a quick 20 minutes, as, uh, as Mark McCall said, which wouldn't have suited Billy. They scored three tries in the last eight or nine, finishing strongly, and Billy was, Billy was there all the time. He was goal-hanging a bit out in the wing, which actually is probably a good sign in a way, in that he's, you know, he's alert and, and, and wants the ball out there and had a try assist for the last try by Brits, I think. So that's great news. How, important,
3: how important is he to England? In, incredibly important.
0: It shouldn't come down to one player, but hey, you know, what a, what a Barcelona without Messi. Well, of course it does, these team sports. You want the best players out there because that's what it's all about. And, of course, Nathan Youssef is obviously injured as well, uh, has, has actually grown a bit in the role, but he's still not Billy Vinopal. As I said, Billy has just got a remarkable ability
3: to is the across yards after across that game,
0: get across that game. That and turns
3: to... all the defenders. It Correct. Advances the offside line. Yeah. Makes everything easier. Makes all
0: the runs. So George Ford gets on the front foot. You know, there's been a lot of things of swirling around George, as There always is, but actually, with Billy Vunapola in the team, George Ford becomes an even better player. I agree. You know, he's on the front foot. Is that? Is it's front pedaling back pedaling isn't it? So yeah. yeah, that's good news. He'd be worried about his second game because his second game in. Various comebacks this has been the one where he's got crocked again. So fingers crossed uh, at all levels for Billy.
3: Okay, I'm just pleased to say we can now speak to George Shooter, the former Leicester Saracens and England hooker. Okay, he's now director of rugby at Hinckley. Hello, George. Afternoon, oh, Morrow. How are you? I'm here with Mick. Uh,
1: Hello, Mick, you right? First yeah, time hi, in
3: 14 years that Leicester have not made the playoffs. Yeah. What are the main issues with Leicester, do you think?
4: Well,
2: there's there's many things I think wrong with the club and, and have been for a few years now. I think with with things like recruitment and player retention and just some of the some of the uh, I don't know, decisions uh, across the board made in, in the last few years into uh, smack of well, I don't know, I wouldn't say a lack of strategy but certainly a muddled strategy and I don't know I don't know where the club's been trying to go for the last four or five years to be honest. Um, and that translates on the field, because if you've got an upset club off the field, it's very difficult for the players to sort of ignore that and just get on with the day job, as it were. Uh, there's a lot of distractions, a lot of issues uh, uh, around the playing side, around the coach side, and also around uh, the club in general, to be honest.
3: One of the things you used to be able to see with Leicester, they'd have a call, then they'd had a player and you say, oh, I understand why that player's come, I understand why that player's come. Mm. Over the last few seasons, it seems to be they've bought good players, but it. Seemingly with no real rationale. Where's that going to fit? How, where they're building to? How how's that going? It's as if they've just said, "Oh, he's quite a good player. Let's have him."
2: Yeah, and that's a, that's, a, that's a little bit what I'm intimating that with the strategy. It's great having a guy like George Ford or a manager Langi, but how do they fit into the whole scheme of things? Mm. If you're paying two players close to a million quid. That's a, that's a fifth of your wage cap so you've got, you've got less money to spend on, on depth and and, uh, and and support players and it just seems that they're not really utilising much of the academy layers they're not use, using uh, a huge amount of players for the first team squad and they've signed, indeed they've signed some fairly high profile players who have played maybe a handful of games some like Pat Silliers I would imagine he's on decent wage, being a being a Spring international. Um, not seeing him much, whether he's up to it or not, I suppose is is a question. But again, that that you look at that signing, you think that's that's a strange signing at the time, uh, and it's not proved to be uh, particularly useful in the in the two or three years he's been here. Would you
0: have um, let? Uh, oh, sorry, George, interrupting you. No, would you have no. let uh, Ed Slater go?
2: Oh, that, that's that's a different issue. Isn't it? I, I think. I can understand the thinking around getting a Johnny May. I mean, Johnny May's at the time and, and has been this season one of the better wingers in the world. He's, mm. got, he's a try scorer But when you look at the squad, what do you need? Do you need wingers or do you need a bit of grunt up front? And I think since Ed, not, not that Ed's uh, the answer at all. Uh, he's, he's a fine player, but mm. there were struggles with him there. But having lost that and uh, not having any other 2nd row options apart from really it looks like uh, Fitzgerald and Kitchener, you have to question. Uh, it's great having all these uh, backs who are silky skills and scoring tries and paid a lot of money, but if they're not getting the ball, uh, then then what's the point of having them? Uh, you do have to question. That, that's what I question about that. Uh, great to have a Johnny May, but would would would, would oh, well, you asking in front row forward here? Would I swap a second row for a
3: winger? Uh, no. <laughs> George, I mean you know Dino very well. I, um, you were coached by him, weren't you? Yes, I was. Yeah, we were talking earlier on, and against many expectations as to what. He was as a man and a player. He's turned out to be a very shrewd um, man-manager and recruiter. Yeah. Was that apparent? Because, I mean, obviously when he took over at Leicester, it was established you had a really good team. But still, yeah. you know, he augmented the four titles, to European titles. So what, is, what has he got that people don't see I think you've you hit, the, hit the nail on the head there more. He's not actually a coach. He never. I don't think he owns a tracksuit. Uh, and,
2: you, and you know him. <laughs> it won't fit. It does. won't fit and it won't look good exactly, if he yeah. does. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he's, he's not the most keen trainer, trainer anyway. So he's, he's very, <laughs> I mean, certainly at Leicester, he was never outside. It was John Wells's forward pack. It was Paddy Howard or Rod Kafer or whoever else was in the backs. Dino was purely a manager and he spent all his time dealing with uh, contracts and recruitment and um, all the sort of nitty-gritty stuff that doesn't make the flashy... Headlines, But then on a match day, obviously, he'd be pitch side making the decisions and, uh, and subs and things like that. Um, and it looks like, actually funny enough, I think his, his worst uh, worst display was when he went to Grenoble. Um, and actually, I think he did try to coach and probably realised it's not his bag, his, mm. he, his, his strengths lie in what he said there, the recruitment and the, and the man management. And it looks like he did a great job at Quinn's, albeit uh, ending on, on a pretty sour note. Uh, That's that squad he put together and went on to win the Premiership under Conor O'Shea and what he's done at Newcastle is nothing short of um, outstanding it's, it's a tough place to play rugby up there in terms of recruitment because it's in the middle of football country and a long way from anywhere else but he's got together a pretty decent squad of of guys who play for each other. I think Toby Flood's signing this year was crucial. He, him and Nicky Gonover have, have really sort of transformed what Newcastle are. They were all, they were they were a decent team last year, more than decent team last year. But I think those two sort of guys have. Uh, not just in playing wise but in you know, influencing the squad of, of, have uh, of changed the, the way they play and that's all down to Dean that's, that's what he does he, he signs people he makes deals he's a deal maker um, he, he's, he's a, he sets the tone he, and, and he did that less though. he obviously it was different there with, with the once in a generation team that he had but he still needed someone to steer the ship and he was front and centre dealing with all the flack from the media when it was necessary and, uh, and signing
3: some pretty shrewd uh, individuals as well I'm sure you're right George thank you very much Cheers, guys. Have a good Cheers, George. I cover Bloodgate. You cover Bloodgate. Mm-hmm. It was an extended period. It was a perfect storm of non-news from other sports, and it went on and on and on. And I went back and looked at this, and Dean Richards got about six weeks' worth of continual yeah. flack. A lot of it came from general sports writers mm. with football backgrounds who were desperate, actually, to give rugby a kicking. Mm. you know, about what they consider to be a preaching sort of attitude it's not but undoubtedly look they cheated other people were cheated, but he got caught yep. and then they lied yep. and always the lying is said. the thing that really really sticks he got three years didn't complain came back under the radar got Quinns promoted as George said created the nucleus of a side that went on to win the premiership doing well at Newcastle isn't it time people just said look let bygones be bygones. I'll, I'll declare he's a mate of mine. He is a mate, yeah. yeah, he made it, yeah, yeah. But, you know, bearing in mind his contribution as a player and a British Lion and as a coach, he made a mistake. It was a bad mistake. He made it worse. But he did do his three years and he didn't whinge about it. and He, now he didn't did do, do
0: his three years and I was at that game and I remember Dean coming around the press conference tent afterwards. He obviously knew because the TV pictures had shown Tom Williams coming off and it looked dodgy. And he was, no, asking, I was commentating. he was asking what we were going to write. And, of course, at that time we didn't really know because there wasn't the amount of close-ups and scrutiny that now there was. And, of course, that was in whatever it would have been, April. It wasn't until August, and I think it was Paul Kelso of this parish, the Telegraph parish, who, who really got onto it and, and, and went at it. And it, it did go on a long while, but if that's the way it was and there were still kind of... Uh, Deceits or half truths to be uncovered, then that's the kind of fault of the whole setup, isn't it? Of which Dean was at the centre. And certainly he and I, you know, had uh, uh, friction, uh, frictionful conversations over the thing. But you're right. I, th- I-, I see absolutely no reason why he shouldn't be lauded and applauded for what he's done. Three years is a long, long ban. I mean, it's a long, long ban. I thought two years would be about right, but it was three and he's done his time. Now, whether that absolutely he's done his time. Now, I wouldn't be against if he was thought he was the right man for him to come back and uh, have a role to play with England one day, if that were appropriate in terms of his skill set and everything else. So, no, I don't see that there should be... I don't think you can erase these things because your history is your history, but I think you just have to hold your hands up and, and acknowledge what was
3: and, and move on. And talking about return to the England fold, uh, rumored rumour about Danny Cipriani. Well, How serious is that? I mean, <laughs> he was persona complete non grata. As far as I was aware, with Eddie Jones. Uh,
0: uh, yes, same here, is my reading. I think it's probably too late for Danny. I can't really see 15 months out from a World Cup. Obviously, if there were an injury crisis, um, and obviously Danny's not uh, is looking for a club and may uh, move overseas and uh, move to France or whatever else where, where there's been a lot of interest. So he wants to know in terms of that. It would seem to me too much of a step, really, at this stage, because there's been plenty of opportunity. He's played well for the last two or three years. He is the player now. He's been for the last two or three years. So if you went through that appraisal process then and came to a decision, which is fine, it's your decision, it's Eddie Jones' decision, then then what's changed? Because he's not playing any better uh, than he has, which is at a high level.
3: And if it ends that his caps ended a long time ago, Mm. he has contributed, to a certain extent, to his own misfortune, not as much as people make out as far uh, you know, yeah. my reading of the facts. But surely in a, an age where you want talent to flourish, it would be a, a crying shame for that to be the sum total of his representative career.
0: Yes, it would. Yeah, You'd have to say it's, it's, uh, it's a talent wasted, really, in terms of what he ought to achieve. Certainly, I mean, it's maybe a bit exaggerated, a sort of extreme to say, I don't think he ever really fully 100% recovered from that Horrible kind of ankle, lower no, leg. No, and I always
3: thought I and I said it's, it's, it, and I'm not being what I said it right at the time. Yeah, this is too early. Why is he coming back so early?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, and I don't think he ever had that kind of a boldness in his running, the sheer acceleration he had. But anyway, he's, he's done fantastically well. But I mean, he, he he and he's you know guilty of his own kind of uh, moving abroad. He fell out with various coaches along the way. He didn't think he was contributing enough to the squad, all those kind of things which have always swirled around him. I think the the old show business paparazzi side is is an absolute side issue, you know. Uh, I think it's fundamental to how coaches see him within a squad.
3: Time to move over to Pro 14. It seems we've all been speaking to Richard Cockrell in one guise or another recently. Uh, We're going to now speak to Hugo Southwell, the former Edinburgh and Scotland fullback. I think he uh, also spoke to Richard after the match to interview him in the hospitality when Edinburgh won the eighteen seventy two cup. Hello, Hugo. Hi, how's it going? You are right. Okay, mate. I mean, with Mick, uh, how did you find uh, Cocker?s Was he in combative mood, or was he in his charm offensive, which is a, uh, a bit of a I, mean, I know it's an oxymoron, but he can do it.
5: Oh, uh, he was he was he was buoyant. I, I don't think I've seen him uh, him smile so much. He was. Uh... He was absolutely delighted, and, and rightly so, because the performance... Um, I've mean, I, I played in a lot of these games, and I've watched a lot of these games since retiring, and uh, they, they, they tend to be pretty drab affairs. And, and this game was uh, was as good as any uh, I've seen. And, and Edinburgh played like they have been playing for the last few weeks. And you know they can take a lot of confidence from that. You know They've beaten a side that uh, has, has won their pool, obviously, in Glasgow weeks ago. Uh, maybe that uh, played on their minds. Uh, Glasgow, and that's played on their recent form. But Edinburgh were you know, worthy winners and they'll go to Munster with real confidence and he was, you know, he was delighted and he's looking forward to that game in Limerick.
3: Well, I was waiting when Glasgow put pressure on in the second half for Edinburgh to crack as indeed, you know, they have done in recent years but they were obviously very confident in their game plan, their systems and so on and that must give them a lot of, you know, hope. it be a big task to, to do that but uh, it must be down to him this injection of faith, this injection, you know, self-belief.
5: I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's been my biggest question to to actually to him um, and to the players. Um, I've done a lot of stuff with Edinburgh recently, and 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 speaking to the the players about where's that actually come from? You know, the the inner belief, the, the mental um, ability, in the in the final minutes of games. You know, let's not forget they won away in Ulster in the last minute. They beat Leinster at home in the last minute. They they got a four a four um, try bonus point of the Dragons in the last minute. They beat Connacht away in the last minute. That's, that's no coincidence. And ever since they lost to um, Treviso at uh, side back in October, I think it was, they've just got on this run of winning games right at the death. And that has to come from the belief um, which has been instilled by him and uh, Richard Cochrane and his coaching staff. And I think he's got to take huge credit for that because they are a side that you look at now that are very difficult to beat. Um, yes, they've had some meltdowns. Um, and we saw against Cardiff and. In the quarter final of the Challenge Cup, they didn't put on their, their best showing, but it's far—they're far more consistent now, um, and, and, and that bodes well for the future for them.
0: I was up to see uh, Cocker's last week, you go in Edinburgh, and that's the one thing he said. He said when he first came in, he, there were several things. He said one, you know, player, what's your ambition for the season? They went, well, win Pro 14. The usual platitudes they put down. He looked at them. He said, "You must be kidding." Not you lot. He said, "You've been rubbish." Um, so he started to make them aware of the realities because he said it was too comfortable up there. You know, there are 100 professional players in, in Scotland and 40 of them will turn out for, for Scotland um, uh, at some point. He said everybody... So that's what he did. He, he set out to, uh, to, to make them aware of their own limitations first and foremost and then to build, to layer on the kind of self-belief. He's got them fitter. They weren't fit enough. He introduced Sunday training sessions, which wasn't very popular. Uh, but he said, listen, we play Friday night. You know, why, why aren't we training on Sunday, given the next game might be on a Friday night? So he's done simple things like that. He's told me some story about the players Just to... The officers were in the west car park, they changed in the kind of north car, or the other way in north car park, changed in the west end. they went out to the back pitches. He said play, he saw players... Looked out his window, driving from one (laughs) end of Murrayfield to the other. And he he let rip with an invective, I can't repeat here, and said, if I see you do that again, you're lazy, what's it? I'm going to sack you on the spot. So it's an accumulation of lots of little bits and pieces. But there's no doubt, I agree entirely, he's fought their corner. He's fought their corner in his uh, own particular way of being very forceful out in the media with Glasgow as well he said I want that to be a proper r- rivalry so he's poked the bear as he called it all those little things he's given them self-belief through better conditioning better awareness of themselves and what he wants to do is is make it a three four five long-term project and I think he's he's, he's remarkably successful in that regard
5: yeah and I, I think there's from that has come an honesty from him but an honesty from within the squad as well I mean I asked him after the game on, on, on Friday, I said, well, you know, what has been the turnaround? And he said, well, just little sim- simple things like being on time for meetings. And and you think that's just a given. Um, it obviously wasn't before. It's things that he, you know, he's come in. He's made sure that real basics uh, are, are on, not just on the pitch, but off the pitch as well. He's got structures in place, uh, as you said, Brian, before that uh, the players are abiding to on the pitch, off the pitch, and, and it's working for them. And uh, and long may it continue. And, you know, he's definitely been a breath of fresh air to, to what. Edinburgh Rugby has needed for the last, I would go back as far as sort of nine years. Um, You know, to to be in the position they're in now is is uncharted territory, um, but it's fully deserved.
3: We've got the quarterfinals and the semis, usual suspects, Glasgow, Scarlets, Leinster, Munster, Edinburgh, depending on how it goes. But possibly, well, certainly in a quarterfinal, the Cheetahs, is that as much as you could have expected from one of the South African franchises in its first year?
5: I think it is, yeah. I think from where they started as well. I mean, the Cheetahs came onto a game sort of uh, halfway through the Pro 14 at the start. Uh, Them and the Kings uh, seemed to be a a bit like the whipping boys. I mean, obviously in South Africa, um, the Cheetahs were were stronger than the Kings um, on on home soil. But I think they've done remarkably well in their first season. The type of rugby they've played has been been really, really good to watch as well. It's brought a new dimension um, to the Pro 14. Uh, and so fully deserved for them to, to make it I mean it's going to be a big ask for them uh, to, to qualify out of that game we've seen what uh, the Scarlets uh, have done so far this season um, but uh, but the Edinburgh Munster game as well go back to that you know I, I don't think Edinburgh have got anything to lose you know you've got a Munster Munster or a quality side we know in these sort of these sort of games cup final games one off uh, winner takes all they're a very difficult side to beat but Edinburgh again I've mentioned earlier they, they are becoming more difficult to beat themselves so I think it's They can go there. They've got an abrasive pack. They've got a big forward pack. Um, You need that away from home, and and, and I think they'll give them a real run for their money.
3: Hugo, great to speak to you as always. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Brian. Usual suspects, probably, in the Pro 14, but what you're going to have to say is that at the moment, club-wise, they are the form teams in Europe, aren't they?
0: The Pro 14?
3: The Pro 14. Yes,
0: they are. Well, I mean, they they contested the, the semis, didn't they? You know, And there's the... With Saracens out, the Saracens, the only English one through. Whether that's just the kind of spin of the wheel, and uh, I mean, it's only two years ago, I think, that the quarterfinals in Champions Cup were five English, three French. So it's, know, a li- it's a little bit that, it but is it is a I, little bit. I, it tell you a,
3: what I think it's yours coming into the World Cup when you're talking about how sides are doing and players that the Irish seem this time to be timing the run properly. Yeah
0: yeah yeah it's it's something that you know wasps always used to do in the Gapland era, wasn't it and then just in the Premiership is actually peak at peak when it matters, which is at the end of the season, so get your conditioning right so that that's when you're at your your peak. I think it's um yeah I think you're right i mean there's there's no question their system is better in that regard in terms of particularly in Ireland, where they yeah. just cherry pick the games uh, um, I think when I went over to see Leinster before the quarterfinals. Johnny Sexton's last game was sometime in January. For Leinster, it had been sometime in January. you know, So, absolutely, uh, stage managing those sort of schedules does seem, does seem to have, have benefit. There's, there's no question.
3: Time now to speak to top international referee Nigel Owens. Hello, Nigel. Brian, I'm very well. Thank you. How are you? Okay, mate. I'm here with uh, Mick Cleary. How was Judgment Day? Well, I was due to
4: be there, Brian, but I got changed. Up to, up to Edinburgh to do the 1872 Cup up between Edinburgh and and Glasgow. So I was up for for their judgment day, I guess, because they had all the sort of domestic finals on their silver, silver finals or silver Saturday day. And it was it was a great day up there, in all fairness. So I I don't know what judgment day was like because I wasn't there, but it certainly was a a great day up in Murrayfield. And uh, but I got to say, all credit to Edinburgh and Glasgow as well. It was it was, a, it was a great game of rugby as well. Really, really enjoyed it up there.
3: It was. Um, James Haskell has come out talking about yellow cards and boring games. And we were just going through the high tackle stuff and just I was was simply saying, look, it doesn't matter to me whether players whack each other around the head late or whatever, because I'll be able to write about it. But it's their careers. um, It's their livelihoods. It's their health that we are trying to look after. And I don't think it helps for players to come out and say what well, I consider to be misguided of saying the game has gone soft. So can you just once again run through us the way in which the high tackle law is written and you've been asked to apply it?
4: The, the tackle law is, is, is quite simple in one sense. Is If you tackle above the line of the shoulders and you sort of make contact with the head or the neck, then, then it's a high tackle. Um, everything else then depends on the situation, the forces, uh, looking at the tackle itself on what the outcome is, whether it's a red or it's a yellow or it's a penalty. But any tackle above the line of the shoulders and make contact with the neck and the head is a high tackle, so it's a penalty no matter what. It doesn't have to start there. If a player tackles high, so let's say he's aiming chest high, and then he tackles on the chest, but his arm then goes up and finishes up around the neck, that's still a high tackle, no matter where you where you start off. The severity of it then is what the referee will deal at the time of what the sanction is. Um, you also then take into account sometimes maybe, let's say, uh, tackle starts on the the height of the say, the, say the side of the shoulder for example, on the bicep. So you may tackle there, and your arm slips up, but It doesn't really make any sort of contact with the head. It just slips on the head and goes over. So you haven't really wrapped around the neck. You've just gone up over the head and over. So you may well have touched the head, but you haven't really made any hard contact with the head. Then situations like that, you would deal with them on their merit. And and sometimes they could well be play on because the tackle wasn't high or the player actually slipped down to the ground and your arm just went up past his neck and past his head without grasping his neck. So there are situations where you may well find contact with the neck or the head that are not penalised. And there would be reasons for that. But if you're tackling and your arm makes contact with the head or the neck, particularly around the neck and stuff, then it's it's a high tackle no matter what. And that is there for for the player's safety. It's, It's there for their own safety. And, um, and I, I'm not quite sure I agree with the game's gone soft, I don't think. You know, the, the game is very physical, very hard, the massive hits that go in. So I don't think the game has gone soft. I just think because the hits are so big now, we have to look after player safety and we need to get those tackles lower. But there are, some t- there are instances in the game where you would deal with things on merit or whether it is a high tackle or not. And down to the referee to interpret that on, on the day.
0: Would you say, uh, Nigel, the in, just on a gut feeling or a ballpark figure from when you first started watching rugby, never mind uh, officiating it, that there are more instances of player players going higher than there were, say, 20 years ago, 25 years ago? Is is that, and, that, and is that therefore what the authorities are trying to uh, clamp down on?
4: Yeah, I, I think you're right, Demi. I think I think when I, you know, when I was in school and he got taught or coached. Mm-hmm to play rugby in school the first time. You were always coached. You tackled around the sort of The waist area or the thighs area you put your head out out of the way and then the right position look after your own safety when you're tackling but then as the game has evolved with you know with the offloads and stuff you look if you go back to sort of you look at maybe when wales were in the heyday with ray gravel back in the 70s and even the early 80s you know grav was running down the middle players were tackling around the waist he'd hand another player off and he was able to offload it was a great part of his strength in his game but what happened as years gone by you get double tackles now, or, mm. or players I think are coached maybe to tackle higher, so they're preventing the offload, and, and by that happening, the tackle has gone higher. But obviously, the higher that tackle goes, there comes an element of, of risk with that, and that's why we've found ourselves a situation where I believe World Rugby has done the right thing here, a brought in... The guidelines have always been there. The law has always been there. But we've you know, been told, look, we need to clamp down on this. If, if players are going to tackle high and they land up making contact with the head or the neck and that's with force, then they will take the consequences of that. And that will, will be now a, a card of, of, of some, some colour, depending on the tackle itself. So you are right, I think. Mm. Because players are tackling higher, we are seeing. And that's why we need to be firm and strict. If it's a high tackle we need to deal with. And if the players don't want to risk giving a high tackle away, then get that tackle a little bit lower to take away that risk of you getting penalised and probably more importantly so, take away of the risk of minimising the much of the injury as we, as we possibly can by minimising that risk of you tackling lower.
3: Nigel, great to speak to you as always. Thank you very much.
4: Pleasure, Brian.
3: Well, the Tyrell's Premier 15s was in its infancy. It's now had a year. We've had one final. It's been won by Saracens, who beat Quinn's 24-20. I'm very pleased to say we can speak to the winning captain, who um, is Lottie Clapp. She was a tri-scorer. Hello, Lottie. Hello. Your pack laid the groundwork for this. How impressive have they been throughout the season?
1: Oh, they've been so impressive throughout the whole of the season. They've really put in some huge groundwork across the whole of the season with the the back row that we've had Marley Packer and Poppy Cleal, Briny Cleal, they've really been tearing up every single side we've come against and I think it's definitely um, a lot to do with the the hard work from all of the forwards that that got us to that final in the end.
3: Well the back row have been getting the plaudits, a better known but the front row, front five, have been doing well. I just wonder um, Bottom and that that rings a bell in Saris' terms. That's nothing to do with Greg Bottom, is it? The old Saracens hooker.
1: Um, I don't know about Greg Bottomman, but I know that her um, she does have a, an uncle or um, relative who who played for England at one stage. And her her mum played for England as well, so she does have um, lots of great rugby huh. in, in the family. So. She was. She's destined to do it. Well, it's just
3: been confirmed. Yeah, uncle is Greg who I played against. That's how yeah, old. It is. That's how, I old, <laughs> how old I am. People's doctors are now now playing, but he was a good player. Greg yes, Gordon, he was. wasn't he? Very he was. good player. So how was it
0: as an occasion for you, Lottie? That that first final was that? Was it what you wanted? Was it what the gay, the women's game, wanted at the start of the season to, to end as it did with a, with a decent, good crowd there, two thousand and a terrific game.
1: Yeah, it was a really great crowd, and to be able to put that that game on, um, it was amazing. That it was a great display of rugby, and in it, it, wasn't a a runaway game either side because it was great that we could show that that there's some real class rugby out there, um, that that's being played, and that the the fact that it went down to the mm. 30 seconds at the end, and it was only four points clear that we got it. That um, it shows how how tight and exciting it was, and um, being on the pitch was was really exciting and like talking to, to people after they said, oh, my heart rate's still still racing after, after watching it. So it's really lovely to, to know that people enjoyed the game.
3: Well, it swung backwards and forwards, as you say, but how crucial was the timing of the uh, third score for you just on the halftime?
1: Um, I think uh, with... With Harlequins, every, get, every um, try was crucial in that game. We knew that we had to just keep on plugging away at them because we knew that they, they would come back at any stage. And um, uh, like a, a lot of the times that we've played them, they've got um, intercept tries and just runaway tries that we're not expecting. And then they, they start to run away with the game. So we knew that it was going to be tight and we needed to stay ahead as, as much as we could.
3: What's your assessment of the impact of this particular? format the competition after its first year and what does it need to do to improve?
1: It's kind of been a, a, a growing experience anyway considering all the all the new things that were put into play. So over the season, it's been improving. Um, like just as a club in general, I know that we've had to um, get used to things that uh, players weren't so um it was very new to a lot of the players at the beginning. So if you weren't involved in international um, uh, rugby, then then having strength and conditioning coaches and having sessions where you were having to get there an hour early to do analysis, it's all quite new for some players. Um, so I think it's just it's getting that buy-in from all the players and um, uh, trying to get more more time and um, getting getting more support behind the players um, so that they can um, so that they can put more time into it.
0: Can you see the day, Lottie, when you're all professional? I mean, describing what you just described is actually how how Brian used to, to train uh, back in the day as well, in the amateur days where you'd just have twice a week, you'd pitch up on a Tuesday and a Thursday. But that gradual kind of layering on of professionalism, uh, one, in your approach, and then two, one of the days, it would be nice, wouldn't it, I guess, in 10 years' time if, if it were a fully professional game at uh, at some sort of level?
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely... It'd be a dream come true if um, that, that could happen one day and it, hopefully getting there. I mean, the support that, that's been growing over this year um, has been amazing and to see that there's been so much more interest in it um, makes it uh, very promising um, But hopefully in a few years we, we could get to that stage where even we're just getting expenses maybe paid for so that we, we are getting that bit more of support there um, to be able to play rugby and, and get better at it.
3: Lottie, thank you very much. Congratulations on being the first winner. They'll never take that away from you.
1: Thank you very much. Lovely talking to you.
3: Let's just move on to finish with. Playoffs places aren't quite finalised yet. But Newcastle have done tremendously well just to get in there with the geographical isolation, the amount of money they don't spend. Can you see them actually progressing beyond the next stage?
0: I can't. And that's no disrespect because <laughs> they're going to have to travel to either Saracens or Exeter. So Saracens, back-to-back European champions, Exeter Chiefs, current Premiership champions. So I don't think that's disrespectful to say that, to go on the road. But listen, hey, you know, they'll be competitive. That That's for sure. As we've just been speaking about Richard Cockrell and Edinburgh, you know, there's no question that uh, that they've got those basics right, but they've also got their attitude, mentality right. You know, they're, they're not a team of... Prima Donnas at all? They're very much a collective. So it's been a great story. The final week is—it's not quite a damn squib because—but it is only deciding it's essentially the final European sort of setups. And and these the sides that make the playoff are the are the best teams, and that's that's absolute credit to to Newcastle. They absolutely deserve to be where they are.
3: Well, you saw Sarri's up close and personal. Are they anywhere near the form of the last two years? Because they're going to have to play uh, that sort of standard if they come up against Exeter, probably.
0: Well, the, it, it know, was London Irish, road. absolutely, it was London Irish yesterday, You actually were very game and battling, and I'm not being patronising to that, but obviously just scoreboard blew out at the end. Thousands have put some points on teams in the last uh, three or four weeks, so they are getting back towards that sort of form. I think they've badly. I think they miss Chris Ashton, I think he's such a gr- proven try scorer, they haven't quite got that real predatory force, but they, they've racked up 40-50 points I think they're going to be very very dangerous and and potent in in the playoffs and and of of every chance of of coming away with a title but then Exeter the Chiefs and Wask can pull something out of a hat as we know and of course Big Billy Mm. is back that's absolutely right
3: that's all we have time for this week on Brian Rose Full Contact thank you to my co-host Nick Clear and my producer Abby Patterson remember please subscribe to the podcast because it's absolutely free and that way you'll never miss an episode. And please leave us a review, because that way more people will find us. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Brian Moore's Full Contact is just one part of the Telegraph Sport podcast family as you can also subscribe and download Total Football. Join Tom Gibbs and a host of Telegraph football reporters as they aim to take you behind the football stories of the weekend. Your Monday morning commutes will be instantly better for it.